Isaac Brickner's wearing a stocking cap. He's not hot. He came for winter. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that. That's great. All right. It's something about being out here in the field that makes me just feel a little more relaxed. Anybody else? I apologize for that. I need to have some more discipline with my time. Well, can you envision being part of the very first congregation to whom Genesis 1, verses 1 through 31, was read out loud? What would it have been like to be the first congregation to hear Genesis 1 read out loud? Can you put yourself back there? I don't know if you're familiar with the Bible or not, but here it is. Moses has written a five-part work. Genesis is the first of those works. And Moses wrote this word to the nation of Israel before they were going into the promised land. In all likelihood, they are there on the east side of the Jordan, ready as a community of faith to enter into the promised land. And they had gathered... And they had been farmers. Most of them were farmers. So what does that mean? That the original audience would have known that plants and animals reproduce according to their kinds. We heard that this morning. They would have known as the first congregation to hear this that if you wanted to have more sheep, you breed your sheep, not your camels. They would have already known that. They would have known that if you wanted to grow barley, you don't plant oats. They would have already have been familiar. Remember, they're already out of the Exodus. They would have been familiar with a six-day work week and resting on the Sabbath. They would have already known that. They would have been familiar with marriage. I mean, how many generations since Adam and Eve? They would have known with a doubt more than we do today that it takes a man and a woman to make a baby. They would have known that. So I say all of that to ask the question. If they already knew those things, what was Genesis 1 supposed to do for the original congregation? What purpose did Moses have in delivering this word? The point must have had less to do with imparting information and more with impressing or instilling upon them a stance of worship. Did you catch that? Less to do with imparting information and more to do with impressing upon them an attitude and a stance of worship. Moses wants the original readers and the original congregation to become worshipers of the true God. This word on creation is to make worshipers from all of creation to the Creator. And what I think is it's easy for us to allow the minutia of what is going on in Genesis 1 and all of our questions about evolution and dinosaurs to derail us from seeing the majesty of this text. But if you listen to Revelation chapter 4, I think you're going to see what our response is supposed to be to this majestic text that Michael read for us. Listen to Revelation 4 verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Here it is. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 
Did you notice that presently in heaven there are worshipers there of God because He created all things? There's actually worshipers around His throne there because He created all things. So here's our sermon in a nutshell. Creation creates worshipers of the Creator. Creation creates worshipers of the Creator. That's what I hope we can do this morning. And we're going to ask, what reasons does this text give us to celebrate God in His creation? I think we're going to see three things. His greatness, His generosity, and His goodness. Right? His greatness, His generosity, and His goodness should evoke in you the desire from your heart to glorify this great generous and good God with your life. So there's not a listener this morning to this sermon that ought not to humble themselves to give thanks for all that God has made for us. That's the application. God's creation should present in us humility to give thanks for His greatness, generosity, and goodness. Let's take a look. First, the source of creation, how it came about, is a cause to worship the greatness of God. Who created? Well, 35 times in our text, God is named. In faith family, there is only one of Him. If you were to read other creation accounts, you would see that the ancient stories have this world emerging from a desperate battle between gods, or you would hear of a hot and steamy intimate encounter between two deities, but according to the Bible, this God only has to say the word. Ten times in chapter, we have recorded, and God said. Creation comes from the voice of God. His only tool was His word. The God of the Bible should create by speaking is no idle detail as any parent who has had to try to control their own children with an only a word. Hey, get back over here. Hey, get back over here. If that has ever happened to you, okay, you ought to know, wow, this God can create and control with His word. Here we are at the beginning of the Bible and consider just how much that God speaks to create teaches you about God. Here's a couple things. First, it means that this God is not silent. He may be known because He speaks. You don't have to guess what this God wants of you, what He is like, because He discloses Himself in words that can be understood that match with reality. Words that match with reality. Is that not a novel thing in this day and age? Second, His are creative and effective. Friends, isn't this great just to praise God? Whatever He wills by the word of His command happens. It's creative, it's effective. The word of God possesses the power of God to accomplish the will of God. Wow. Whether it's fiat of creation, let's fast forward a little bit, as good Bible students, a warning of dire judgment or a promise of salvation, we can be absolutely certain that whatever God's Word declares to be His will certainly will be done. Faith family, take it to the bank. 
When God speaks, it happens. There's a warning. Listen up. There's a promise. Claim it. It's good for you this morning. Third, you learn that creation is what it is because God commanded it. Creation is what it is because God commanded it. What does it mean for you? This world was not an accident. This world is not autonomous on its own, spinning, doing whatever it wants. No. Creation exists as it does because creation was obedient to the intent of the Creator. Listen to Psalms 33, verses 6 and 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. Here it is. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Moses is taking great literary pains for you to see the greatness of God in the order of this creation. Just step back and marvel with me at how Genesis 1 and its literary structure displays the greatness of God. There are six days of this creative will, this creative word that is on display. Did you notice that the six days of creation can be perfectly divided into two halves? Did you notice that? The first three days describe the forming of the earth, and the last three days describe the filling of the earth. Both the forming and the filling of the rest of the days are a direct remedy to that opening statement we looked at last week. The earth was without form, formless, and void. Nothing to fill it. And so here we have, at the very beginning, the earth formless and void, and now God steps in to remedy. Okay, it's formless? Great. I will create forms. It is, with its void, inhabitable? Great. I will fill it. And there's a correspondence between these two halves. It's so beautiful. I pray you go back and listen to it again. Just think about it like this. On day one, light was created. On the corresponding day four, there came the sun and the moon to rule the light. Form, light. Filled, now he hangs the sun and the moon to fill it. Day two, God created the expanse that he called sky, separating the waters above from the waters below. The form, there's a sky now. There's, there's water now. Guess what? Parallel, day five. God fills the sky and the waters with fowl and fish. Creates a form. There's a sky now. There's water. Corresponding day five, he fills it. Day three. God separated the water and the dry land and created vegetation. On the matching day six, God filled the land with animal life and created man to rule over it all. Moses is organizing this material for us to step back and to see that the biblical account of creation is peaceful. It is ordered. It is systematic. Did you even hear there is a rhythmic nature to this creation? And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said that it was good. And God said that it was good. And you can hear this rhythm that God operates with. was not haphazard. Creation was not violent. The work of creation that you are witnessing is absolute perfection, flawless, systematic, and orderly, 
all for you to worship the greatness of this Creator God who has no other rivals and can create ex nihilo, which is a fancy way of saying out of nothing. And God said, and it was so. Truly great is the Lord. Most worthy of praise. Psalms 96.4 The song we're going to end the service with. O oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I, I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. The greatness of God. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great, great thou art. How great thou art. Do you want to sing now? Second, Genesis 1 doesn't just pull you to consider the greatness of God. I want you now to consider not just the source of creation, I want you to consider the scope of creation. And the scope of creation is here to cause you to celebrate the generosity of God. So the source of creation, how it came about, should make you worship the greatness of God, but the scope, the diversity, the abundance of what He has given us, all that is in creation, should make you celebrate the generosity of God. Yes, it is amazing feat of power that God accomplishes all of this with ease and perfection. But the world that we get to live in is remarkably diverse and abundant. There is more, think about it, diversity and abundance than there needs to be if all God wanted the world to do was exist and nothing more. If He just wanted the world to function, would we need all the trees and the kinds that we have? If God just wanted Adam to be able to eat, he could have provided one sort of tree and that was it. And instead, Genesis 1.29 says, And God gave them every plant, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. He gave them abundance. He gave them diversity. Separating them into different kinds. The world could have functioned with soil and rain, and yet God encrusted our earth with gold, onyx, pearls. Just beauty. Well, why, why, why gold? Why onyx? Why pearls? We just need something to come out of it. Human beings, I know we have young kids here, and that's okay, I hope you talk about this with your kids later at an age-appropriate level, I think I'll keep it in that lane, human beings could have been created to produce in any number of boring ways. And God, it was His plan, it is His, that He creates this unnecessarily intimate and pleasurable experience that we call sex between a husband and a wife. God gave you that in His creativity and abundance. And it was good. Celebrating it the way that God intended it to be celebrated. He looked back and evaluated all of his creation, including man and wife, and how they had to come together and says, that is good. Man, God's world is functional. Yes, it works. But not to the point of being predictable or ugly. Look around. God's world is beautiful. 
but not to the point of being useless or impractical. Oh, that's gaudy. No. God marries the best of order with variation through differentiating, dividing, and separating. Faith family, I don't know if I've ever heard this mentioned in Genesis 1 until I studied it two weeks ago. Part of what God made that was good was separating. I think it has a big implication for some worldviews today. We'll get into them next week. But when God creates the world, he divides, distinguishes, and separates. Did you notice that? Seven times the word separation occurs. Look at verse 4. There's an immediate division, differentiating, separating in creation. What does verse 4 say? And God saw that light was good, and God what? Separated the light from darkness, distinguishes, differentiates, separates. Two different things. You see it again in verses 6 and 7. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above, and it was so, right? You see it again in verses 14 and 18 as he differentiates between night and day. He said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate them from the night. And then you hear it again with how he creates humans. That's the first word. And God created man. It's the word for humankind. And he, what did he do? Oh, he distinguishes, he separates, he differentiates ontologically between men and women. He creates humankind, but in his goodness, he separates them into a male version and a female version. God ordered the world with these divine pairs, and he wants us to enjoy this earthly life, enjoying him in relationship with him, and he does that in separating, dividing, and differentiating. I want you to see the big picture again of how this scope of creation and all of its immense diversity, all the way down to mankind, it's to cause us to worship this generous, lavish, and rich God. So that's the application. You look at all the diversity, and it should make you worship this generous, lavish, and rich God who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I want you to think how you relate to this God and how different this true God and our relationship to him is from all the other false gods. Compare how we relate to a, Genesis, uh, to a generous God of the Bible with how most people think religion works. From ancient times, the main question in life was, how do I relate to the gods? Okay? And your answer to that question is what gives shape to religion. That's why people that you know that are your neighbors, that are non-Christians, say, oh, religion is just the work of man, and it's to manipulate man and to get him to do different things. Okay? Now, in the old times, most people believed that individual gods, small g, had spheres of influence, domains of operation, and they could be bartered with. I'll scratch your back, God, if you scratch mine. So think about it like this. You wanted to have a nice sea voyage. So what would you do back in the ancient times? You would go to the temple of Neptune, because he's the god of the sea. And you would try to figure out, what's the appropriate sacrifice I offer to Neptune that's going to make him happy? And if I happen to get that right sacrifice to Neptune, then maybe he will keep the sea calm for me and give me a safe trip. 
It's a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Now, if you're here as a non-Christian, we're so glad you're here. I want to clarify what we are doing this morning called worship. Are we doing that? Are we offering God something so that He does something back to us? I'm sorry if you're here and you're a non-Christian. I'm sorry that you've met some Christians today that operate this way. Here's how it impacts us. We relate to God like this. And I'm sure it's well-meaning, but it's distorted, and I love to correct it. You know, if I read my Bible every day, God is going to give me health and I won't get sick. You know, it's probably because I didn't read my Bible today that this happened to me. Others might think, you know, if I'm good enough, if I just don't commit that one sin, then God will give me a happy marriage and I'll never lose my job. Others believe that if you just say the right prayers, even your children will never rebel. You know what happens? People come to church like that. And they look like they're really sincere worshiping God. But do you know how you know they're not really genuinely worshiping God? It's when something bad comes into their life. And it's happened in my own family. Something bad comes into life. They're going to church. They're going through all these motions. It looks authentic. It looks genuine. And then something bad happens. And this is what it says. This is what they say. Man, I was going to church. This God thing just didn't work out for me. What good is it going here anymore? I did all this stuff. I was doing all the right things, and now this? Come on! And they walk away from church. And what does it reveal? It reveals a false idea of who this God is. You see, the problem with thinking like that is this. It presupposes that God has needs and that you can offer him something that he needs and therefore wants, and that you can put God in your debt. But is that the picture that you get from Genesis chapter 1? Is it Adam and Eve providing for this God that is needy? Or is it this lavish, generous, good God who is providing for all that Adam and Eve could possibly want by putting him in this temple called the Garden of Eden? Is the picture of Genesis 1 a God who is small and weak and able to be domesticated and manipulated by your good deeds? Is that what we get? No. Genesis 1, the God who is there is a God who is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, but he is a God who serves human beings out of his generous grace. So what are we doing this morning? If you're here as a non-Christian, you're wondering, what are Christians doing? We are not offering worship to God because He is needy and insecure. We are not giving money because He somehow needs it to do His work. We are not serving Him as if He is up there twiddling His thumbs going, Oh, how am I going to save this world if it wasn't for them doing something? No! We are here with open arms because it is a symbol of that we are only recipients. It is only grace that we get anything. God does not need us. We need Him. And so we just come here saying thank you for all that He has done for us. And that is called worship. Not to barter. Not to manipulate. Not to put God in our debt. And so even when bad things happen, we say, God, You are sovereign. You are good. And just like the moon, the moon is always a sphere, isn't it? It's a circle. But different times of the month, the moon looks smaller and smaller. 
And it's the same way with God. God is always good. God is always generous. But at different times in your life, it looks like it's a little bit... There's a sliver. There's less of Him. But when you can't see all of Him, you have to go back to His heart. You have to go back to the Word and say, God, what I see right now is a little distorted picture of you, kind of like the moon. I don't know if you're good in this or mean in this. Why are you doing this to me? But the moon is always the whole moon. Do you get that with me? Next time you look at creation and you see the moon tonight and you go, wow, I only see a sliver of it. But it's all still there. And we need to remind ourselves through church and through gathering of all the attributes of God, even when the personal circumstances look confusing. I know you're going through some tough times, say family. But God is good. And He's generous. And He's great. And that should cause humble thankfulness and trust. Last. You getting hot? I'm not going to try to adapt this time. Okay, we're going to land the plane. Here it is. The source of creation, a cause of greatness and praise. The scope of creation, God's generosity and abundance and diversity. Now the sequence of creation, the order in which it happens, I think shows us the goodness of God. Moses is taking great pains to telescope you, the reader, into day six. He wants to narrow your focus into the sixth day. Think about it this way, faith family. Notice the number of verses allowed for day six are eight in number. You know what that means? 25% of the volume in chapter one is day six. I know it's easy to get off on the minutiae of all of creation and all of your questions, but it should remind you by what God is doing and how Moses is driving you to man that creation account is not predominantly a treaty on geology. It is not a treaty on astronomy. It is a treaty on humanity. The God of verse 1 who created the heavens and the earth does not talk about the heavens anymore. He begins to zoom in on what? The earth. And as he zooms in on the earth, what does he give more time to than anything else? The creation of man. Mankind. Humankind. Male and female. Genesis 1 is remarkably man-centered. Everything is moving towards humanity as God's prime subject. And it's a glorious wonder. I want to just walk you through. I think I have five things that show you that mankind is the pinnacle of creation. First, the divine counsel. God says, let, verse 26, let us make man in our own image. Now that could be the royal we. Have you ever used the royal we before? It's like this. When I say about Laura and I, we are pregnant. My wife says, we are pregnant. Now that would be a whole different discussion for today. Okay, you can talk to her afterwards if that's true. Okay, meet her, ask that question. But clearly, we are not pregnant. She is like, I'm pretty sure this is all up to me. And then so it's the royal we. That's how it works, right? That's kind of funny. Is that God saying, let us make man in our image as if it's a royal we? Maybe. Is this a hint at the theology that God is three in one? A triune God. Absolutely. And what we learn here in that phrase, let us make man in our image, is that unlike the rest of creation, God's decision to create humans is personal. You could even argue God's decision to create you is interpersonal. 
Let us make man in our image. So what does it reveal? First of all, there's divine counsel. It's special. He doesn't do that for anything else. Second, did you notice that three times in verse 27, the word create is used? Create, create, create. Let me just read Genesis 1.27 to you. And you can see how three times the word create is used. 127, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Why the repetition? Because in Hebrew, repetition is a superlative. Think about Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy. Is it because God isn't holy the first time? No. But it's a superlative to say how great this is. And God on day six is saying, created, 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 because I'm so happy about creating man. Third, God's the direct agent. Everything else, God takes the remote and says, let there be, pushes the button, zap, and it happens. But when it comes to day six, I had an Old Testament professor said it like this. When it comes to day six in creating man, God got up off the couch. As opposed to just immediately zapping the button to create, God gets up off the couch and he gets his hands dirty and he forms man, unlike anything else, from the dust of the earth, saying, wow, you didn't do that for all the fish in the sea? You did that for man? Hey, I, I, this is not supposed to be the application point, but here it is. The next time you look, let me go this way. A Down syndrome, incestuous rape baby has the inherent worth and dignity and beauty more than the rest of all of creation because that baby who is Down syndrome and the product of an incestuous rape is made in the image of God. The next time you go out and you look at creation, you go, wow! You walk up to a human with whom you disagree politically, a human with which you disagree with their sexual lifestyle, and you begin to just go, they are more than my greatest treasure and greatest place to go on this earth. Because God formed them. Fourth, Genesis 127 is the first time poetry is used in God's word. It is a hymn-like benediction. Do you see in your Bibles how Genesis 127 is, is differentiated in the text? Does it have an indent? It's God's hymn blessing this in all of its goodness that what he is doing here in creating man is the highest pinnacle of praise because it is man that even though he's going to fall in sin in chapter 3, God is going to redeem him and that's going to be the praise of his glorious grace. It stands out as the only time in Genesis 1 where poetry is used. Finally, only humans are created in his image. You know, animals are male and female. Does he talk about that? You don't get any classification of male and female with the animals. But when it comes to humans, God says male and female both equally created in my image. We are the only ones with the divine stamp to represent him. When Christ is asked... Hey, uh, whose image 
Get that word? Whose image is on that coin? Caesar's. Guess what? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. That has its stamp on it. It had his picture on it. So give Caesar his tax money. But you know what an even greater phrase is? And render to God what is God's. What is he implying there? Hey, if you have God's stamp on you, image bearer, what is your only rightful act of response? If I'm to give Caesar all that is his, well, if I am God's image bearer and render to God the things that are God, that means all of me. Here I am. I owe you. I think we get all mixed up in taxes and states and stuff, but that passage should rock your world that you are the image bearer and you are to owe God your life. All of this to show that God loves humans. He made this world with humans in mind. And it's good. And the sequence of the days shows that He's good. Can you believe how much you would doubt God's paternal goodness if He threw man into the world on day one when it was formless and void? There's nothing here for me. How about if he didn't give us light? If he threw us here on this earth before there was a sun to rule the day and we're stumbling around in darkness? How about if he put us here before he gave us stuff to eat? Oh, my friend, you should see the order of creation and go, what a good God you are for giving me air that I can breathe, water that I can drink, Food that replenishes itself. God made a creation that can sustain itself. Trees produce trees, which produce fruit, which produce fruit, which animals produce offspring, all for us. And he didn't put us there until that temple, until that sanctuary was perfect. And then he says, rule over it as my image bearers. Represent me. He made everything with you in mind. And God saw that it was good. Seven times in the fullness of the creation account, the light was good, the seas were good, vegetation, plants, and trees, good. Verse 18, sun, moon, and stars, God saw that we were good. 20 and 21, birds of the air, creatures of the sea are good. 24 through 25, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth. And then Genesis 1.31, God summarizes it as, and it was very good good. How about this for an application? God doesn't merely create. He assigns value. Faith family, are you celebrating what God says is good? Or have you allowed the catechizing and forming of the world's ideology to begin to say that other things are good that God never said was good? Christians, can you demonstrate with your life the way in which you live in accordance to God's word is actually a good and beautiful life to those who are so desperately looking for it and are destroying themselves and other people. Not just an argument against certain lifestyles, but do you have an argument for the goodness and beauty of what God created? Faith family, are you celebrating what God says is good? Or have you gotten too smart for your own self and begin to say, well, I'm not so sure Genesis 1 really talks about. And God said, after evaluating all that he had done, it was very good. 
He's a good God. And His will is for us to thrive. And following God's plan is a way for your life to have inexpressible joy. This account is to make worshipers. And how tragic it is that our condition, we don't honor God or give thanks to all that He's created. In fact, we've tried to explain different things away. We've been embarrassed by how God has done certain things. And yet, God is to be celebrated for how He formed creation. And it is His right to say how it should be used and done. Because we're His image bearers, not our own. This ought to affect every breath you take today. This ought to affect your walk to the car. Just then sings my soul. It ought to make you bow down in humble adoration. Psalms 33, verses 1 through 8. Let's turn there and we'll close. Psalms 33, 1 through 8. Psalms 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Why? For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Creation creates worshipers of the Creator. God has provided sufficient evidence for me and for you that He exists. He planned. He designed. He crafts. He acts. Created and made. The universe is God's very work of art. Like a potter or a sculptor or a poet, except that God had no existing materials. And in doing so, creation is meant to awaken you to the glory of God. Creation ought to cause in you worship and grateful adoration. Would you stand with me and sing, How Great Thou Art.